you can release your, your children to head upstairs. They will uh, have a time of worship that is specifically designed for them on their level. And also, uh, they do a lot of activities, hands-on activities that help them to not only hear the truths, but interact with them so that they can really learn from those things. And they'll be ready for you to pick them up at the end of our service today as well. We're going to be in the book of James. I've said that already, and so I would encourage you to take your Bible out, turn to the book of James, or your phone out if that's where you have the Bible, or whatever other device. If you don't have a Bible, in the back of the pew in front of you should be a blue hardback copy of the ESV. That's the English Standard Version, the version that I uh, preach and teach from, and so you can grab one of those and turn with us to the book of James, located toward the end of the New Testament. And what I want to do this morning, kind of as a way of, of, of overview as we jump into this study in the book of James, is to lay out some of the background and, and, and talk about even who was the author and, and what were some of the things that were happening, the reason why James has written this letter. And a lot of that can be found just by simply looking at and, and studying in, in greater depth, the first verse of the book of James. So James chapter 1, verse 1. We've entitled this series, this sermon series, Faith That Works. And the reason is because if you're familiar at all with the book of James, then you know that James talks a lot about putting our faith into action. In fact, uh, a central part of the, the entire letter that James has written here is found in James chapter 2, where he talks about the fact that faith without works, faith without something to show for it, is dead faith. And so a, a key part of James' understanding and the reason that he is writing is to teach us about how we are to take our faith and put it into action, how we are to prove that our faith is genuine or that is real by the way that we live it out. So this is faith that works. And, and so we'll talk more about his purpose in, in a moment, but I, I want us to See that as we jump into James chapter 1, verse 1, where we read this. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, James has written a letter here, and so oftentimes this is referred to as an epistle because the New Testament letters are called epistles, and epistles are letters that are written with a purpose. And so James certainly has a, a purpose that he's writing. But let's ask first this question as we study, who, who is this James that is writing to us? James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, there are four, four persons who bear the name James, four characters, if you will, of the story of the New Testament named James. One is James, the son of Alphaeus, who is possibly the, the brother of Matthew. The, uh, in Mark chapter 2, we see that, uh, that Levi was also the son of Alph Alphaeus. And so if that's a reference to Levi, who's Matthew, the author of the first gospel that we have in the New Testament, then that would make this James, the son of Alphaeus, his brother. There is James, who is the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, who was a disciple of Jesus, the other Judas. There is James, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, the brother of the apostle John. This James was one of the inner circle, one of the, the, the three who are often referred to throughout the gospel as Peter, James, and John. This is this James, the, the son of thunder. That's what, that's what they were known as, James and John, the sons of thunder, because that was what their, 
their name meant literally. Um, there, was, there was also finally this fourth character, this fourth James, who was James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the child of Joseph and Mary, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And when we look at each of these characters in the New Testament, uh, for different reasons, we can easily rule out James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the father of, uh, of Judas. James, the son of Zebedee, Acts chapter 12 tells us, was martyred for his faith at a period of time well before this would have been written. And so that leaves us with James, the, the brother of Jesus, who is the author of the epistle that also bears his name, the author of the letter of James. And, and there's, there's greater evidence that I want us to go into in understanding who this James is, but uh, I'll just say first and foremost that it's widely accepted in, in church history and church tradition that this James is also the author of this letter that is written to us. Not, it's not completely uncontested by those who have sort of a, a suspicion or who, who are trying to be critical in the sense of trying to poke holes in the story of the Bible and the, and the New Testament authors and different things, but it's widely accepted in church tradition and church history that James, the brother of Jesus, would have been the author of this letter. In Matthew chapter 13, verse, 30, verse 55, we find listed the brothers of Jesus. There's a reference there that Matthew makes to Mary and then the brothers of Jesus and, and names them as as James and Simeon and Judas. And so in listing these brothers of Jesus, we see two, actually, of these brothers have gone on to write New Testament works for us, James, of course, and then the book of Jude. That would have, that would have been the, the other, one of the other half-brothers of Jesus, Jude, who, uh, who wrote that letter for us as well. And so we find this interesting turn of events where throughout much of the life and the ministry of Jesus, his family, particularly his brothers, often are recorded throughout the Gospels as saying that they were trying to convince Jesus to stop the things that he was doing because other people didn't like them, and even they suspected that he had gone mad, that he was crazy. And in fact, wouldn't you, if, if it was your brother who was telling the world that he was the Messiah, if it was your brother who was the one saying that he was the God of all creation, the Lord of all things, wouldn't you likely say, what are you talking about? See, I'm the middle of three boys. And if either of my brothers one day decided that he was God's chosen Messiah, that he was God in flesh, uh, I would be the first to be like, what, you've lost your mind. You are crazy, Right? Uh, and, and so we find in, in the Gospels, particularly uh, in, in Matthew, in Matthew 13, in Mark chapter 3, that the brothers of Jesus, the family of Jesus, would, would try to convince him to stop what he was doing and, and, and stop saying these things that they knew were ultimately going to get him in trouble. And yet, Jesus knew that the hour had come for his ministry and his ultimate mission, his purpose on this earth, and so of course he didn't stop. But what we find as you follow the story, as these events play themselves out, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 tells us that after his resurrection, that Jesus appeared to James. And then in Acts chapter 1, when we find the story of Pentecost, 
we find that the disciples and the believers were gathered together in the upper room. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of Jesus were gathered there as well. And of course, following Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit fell, we see a transformation take place in the life of all of the believers, all of the disciples, as they receive the Holy Spirit. But in particular, we see this transformation that takes place in the life of James, such that James rose to prominence in the life of the early church and even became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What we would probably refer to by, by today's standards or, or today's terminology, we would have called James the pastor or the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He rose to that prominent role of leadership in the life of the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15, we find that there is the... The council at Jerusalem, that believers from throughout Christendom, but especially throughout Palestine, gathered together in Jerusalem, and they were dealing with this question in Acts chapter 15 of, should we take the gospel to the Gentiles? And if we are to do this, how are we to do, how are we to do that? How are we to get it there? And so if you look in Acts chapter 15, it's, it's interesting that you find that after they have laid out their questions after they have gathered together to pray and consider these things, it's James who speaks up as the voice of leadership in the church. And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 13, we see this, that after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who, make, who makes these things known from old. And then this is what James says in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is this. Now, when you hear James speaking here in these words that are recorded for us, you hear the authority that he speaks with as the leader of this church in Jerusalem. He says, my judgment is this, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim faith, for he has read every Sabbath in these synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles, verse 22 tells us, and the elders, with the whole church. And so James was leading the way in the life of the early church. In Galatians chapters 1 and 2, as Paul is relating his story to the church at the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, and then in chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, he speaks about his time with James, who at this time Paul equates as an apostle of the early church, that he is one of the prominent leaders. Though James was not one of the twelve, he was one of the prominent leaders in the life of the early church. And so from this, throughout the New Testament and the New Testament writings, and then even just in the tradition of the church and church's history as well, we see that James was a central, a key figure. And so he is undoubtedly the author of this same letter that bears his name. And what's interesting is that you will find as we, as we dig into the study of James, that often throughout the letter of James, if you were to study 
the, 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 the language of how James has written itself, that James often is writing and speaking in the imperative, meaning that he's giving instruction, right? You learned in school when you were studying English, when you were studying grammar, you learned that when someone speaks or writes in the imperative, they are, they are telling someone what to do. They are giving an instruction, and that's exactly what James does. I mean, just glance at the, the language that he uses in chapter 1 alone. Count it all joy, my brothers. Let steadfastness have its full effect. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask in faith. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You, you just scan down and you see that he's speaking, he's writing here in the imperative, meaning that James assumes a certain position of authority to his audience that would have gone with his role as the pastor, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so from, from the beginning of Christianity, we find that James rises to this prominent role as the leader of the church, one of the foremost leaders of the early church. And he's written this letter, of course, to us that continues to speak authoritatively through us, to us through the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit. The letter that James has written was likely written sometime in the mid-40s. In fact, most New Testament scholars date the writing of this letter at some point between A.D. 44 and A.D. 49. Now, in A.D. 49 is when the Council of Jerusalem that was recorded in Acts chapter 15 was held in A.D. 49. And so, we know that there was a certain decision, there were certain things handed down through that council in A.D. 49, and, and most assuredly, if this letter were written after that, James would make some reference to that in the way that he has written, and, and, and even just in the language of his instruction, but there's no reference here to something along the lines of, remember the decision that was handed down, or remember what we decided, remember the, right? So, so oftentimes, the scholars who are studying the book of James will use that to point to the fact that there was an early date for the writing of the book of James. And in fact, if it was written, as is, like, it is largely believed, if it was written sometime in and around A.D. 44, 45, 46, that would make James the first of the New Testament writings, written before any of the, uh, any of the Gospels, written before any of the other epistles, that would make this the earliest of the New Testament writings. Now, we don't know that for certain, but there's, there's solid evidence both from the story of the New Testament, and, and also from external sources like the works of, of the historian Josephus and others that point us to, to believe that, in fact, this, this is the earliest of the New Testament writings. And there's a certain character of James' writing that would go along with that idea as well. In fact, it's, it's best that we not think of James as a, as a, as a Jewish Christian but rather as a Christian Jew. And what I mean when I say that is, James was thoroughly in every way Jewish, born the son of a Jewish father and Jewish mother, born into the, born into the tradition of the life of, of a Jew, lived, lived his life in Jerusalem. The, the, uh, well, not all in Jerusalem, but in his latter years, certainly, and raised in Nazareth. I mean, think about what it would have been like to be the brother of Jesus. And so what we know from the story of Jesus, where Jesus was raised and, and the background of Jesus, James would have been there alongside him in all of that. And at a certain point, he moves to, gravitates toward Jerusalem, where he is 
a Jew of Jews, and he's a leader in the life of this early church, and he couldn't divorce himself from his background and his heritage, yet he was also a believer in Christ. He was, he was a Christian in every sense of the word. And so as a, as a Christian Jew, as someone who became a follower of Jesus, believing his own half-brother Jesus to be the Messiah, the chosen one of God, we see the, the certain character of his Jewish upbringing in the way that James is written. Oftentimes, the letter of James is linked to Jewish Old Testament wisdom literature. On Wednesday nights right now, if you come on a Wednesday night, we're studying through the book of Proverbs. And if you read the book of James, you'll find a lot of connection both in the content but also the style of the book of James. You'll find a lot of connection with the book of Proverbs because it's written in this form almost of wisdom literature. And yet other Bible scholars have pointed out that there's a strong connection between the book of James and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7. John MacArthur even goes on to say that he believes that you can use the book of James as a commentary to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's such a close connection between the two. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, it means, it means this ultimately. It points us to James' purpose in writing. See, unlike many of the other New Testament letters, James is not writing to us to instruct us on how we are to be saved. Rather, James is writing to us to instruct us about how we are to live in light of our salvation. In fact, Paul oftentimes sort of answers the question of what must you do to believe. In Paul's writings, you'll find that he centers on things like justification, atonement, redemption. He centers on the person and the work of Jesus. And you'll find all of these things to be absent in James' writing. Now, that doesn't mean that James doesn't believe in justification. It doesn't mean that James doesn't believe in salvation by faith through grace. But rather, James' purpose in writing is not to tell us how we're to be saved, but rather how we're to live because we are saved. And we see that even in James 1.1, when he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, James's audience is others like him who were Jews who have come to faith in Christ and now are scattered throughout what is known as the dispersion, or in other words, the diaspora. See, we know that there were Jews scattered throughout what would be today Palestine and, and that area that that would be modern-day Asia Minor. You remember our study from this past summer, our study in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and those churches, and, and how oftentimes those churches were born out of the synagogues that existed in each of those cities prior to the work of, of Christ, prior to the ministry of Jesus. There would have been a Jewish synagogue in these cities, and when Paul and Barnabas traveled to these cities, the first thing that they would do is they would go to the Jewish synagogue and they would preach Christ there and they would find oftentimes that there were already those who believed in the synagogue and that goes back to Pentecost. You remember that we, we studied all of this this summer and, and so there's this, this group of believers, this group of Jews who exist throughout much of the Roman Empire of this day who were known as diaspora Jews. Now diaspora is from the Greek word diaspora, which just means that they were scattered. That's what the word literally means. 
And so there were Jews scattered throughout the world who, because they heard the gospel preached at Pentecost and believed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, now they, they lived in these different cities and were believers in Jesus. And James is writing to them to instruct them on how they ought to live out a genuine Christian faith. And so the, the letter of James is a series of tests, really, a series of, 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 of tests or, or instructions that are given that are to prove the genuineness of our faith. Okay, so that's a lot of background as to what's happening here. That's a lot of background as to the structure and, and even what's happening, but it's important that we understand that so that as we dig into the book of James, we can make sense of this. Because I'll tell you this, there are, along the way, throughout the years, there are some who have been critical of the book of James because of its structure, because they would say, well, you don't find salvation taught in the, the book of James. In fact, you find almost this, almost this anti-salvific message because salvation in James chapter 2, if, you're no, if you don't study James chapter 2 in its right context, it almost seems that salvation depends on our works in James chapter 2, and that doesn't match with any of the rest of the New Testament's writings about salvation and the work of faith. And so there are some who would point to James, the fact that James has this, this, uh, this almost random sort of scattering of these disconnected teachings. James jumps from one topic to the next. Again, if you, were, if you weren't seeing the cohesion in all of this and the purpose in James' writing, it would be easy to point the finger and say, someone just took these different sayings and just compiled it together under the name James, and, and somehow the letter got in. Somehow it made its way into the New Testament. And, and there have been critics over the years who have, who have levied these types of criticism against the gospel of James. And we even know just from church history as well that the, the letter of James was one of the last to be approved and included in the New Testament canon. And so along the way, there have been some who have missed the beauty and the purpose of James' writing. But I want us to see as we study that, that James is essential for our understanding of how we are to live our Christian faith. And so James refers to himself here as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, he's writing to believers who are scattered throughout the, the known world, right? Throughout the Roman Empire, these believers who are scattered. And he offers them his greetings. And so as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, James sets an example for us to follow. So what I want to do this morning is I want to point out seven different ways from this one verse of Scripture, seven different ways that we can understand what this means for us to follow in James' footsteps as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first point that I want us to see is that a servant will live a life marked by obedience. Now, the word here that is translated to mean servant is the Greek word doulos. And if you understand what the, the word Greek doulos means, it can literally be translated as a servant or a slave. In other words, it is someone who is a servant who did not become a servant, but rather was born into a life of service, a slave. There are, there are others who would become servants through some form of indentured servitude, who would, who would have a master that they would serve 
for a period of time, usually to work off a debt or to, to pay for something that they couldn't afford on their own. And so they would, they would become a bondservant to a master. But this term, this word doulos, refers to someone who was born a slave. Someone who, who is literally is, is a slave by birth. And James refers to himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus. It's important that we understand that this is not a disparaging term, that James would refer to himself as a servant, as a slave of his half-brother Jesus was not in any way a disparaging thing. In fact, James considers this to be a term of honor in the Old Testament. Several characters of the Old Testament are referred to as servants of God. Moses, Daniel, Joshua, Caleb, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Isaiah are all referred to in the Old Testament as a slave of God, a servant of God. And by referring to himself as a slave of God, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, James is identifying with his his heritage. In other words, what he's saying is, I stand in the same line as all of those who have gone before me. Now, they were precursors. They were forerunners to Jesus the Messiah. And now, as, as someone who stands on the other side of Jesus' saving work and, and his resurrection, James is linking himself and his Jewish heritage with his, with his brother, Jesus, saying that he is a servant of God. And so, what does a servant do? A servant obeys his master. A servant does the will of his, of his master in James by, by referring to himself as a servant, by identifying himself as a servant. James is, is saying that I want to live a life of obedience to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, whom, by the way, he understood to be one person, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That also speaks to the character of James's theology and his understanding of, of sound Trinitarian theology, that, that he's making himself, referring to himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a servant will live a life marked by obedience. If you and I desire to be servants of, of the Lord, then we need to live a life of obedience. Jesus says it plainly to his disciples, that if you love me, you will obey my commands in John chapter 14, verse 15. And so if, if we want to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith, by living as a servant of the Lord, we will live a life marked by obedience. Secondly, we see this, a servant will serve the body of Christ. Now, this may seem, at first, uh, rather obvious, right? I mean, almost to the point that, that we would say, do we even need to say that? A servant will serve. We get it, right? I mean, it, of course, a servant will serve. But here's what I want you to understand when James refers to himself as a servant, and we talk about his service. James, we know, we understand, was a prominent leader in the life of the early church. James could have used his position of leadership in the life of the church. More than that, he could have used his close connection to Jesus as a half-brother of Jesus to somehow set himself up as, uh, as, as a lord of sorts over the early church. He could have made himself a ruler whose word was not to be questioned. He could have set himself up as this type of authoritative figure that should not be challenged by anyone. And yet we find none of that in the character and the writing of James. James makes himself a servant. 
James humbles himself. He doesn't tout his relationship as Jesus' half-brother to, to get his way, to convince others that they have to follow him. He doesn't, he doesn't try to lord his position of prominence and his leadership in the early church to somehow say, everyone needs to listen to me because after all, I am the leader of this, this, this group of Christians. Instead, James makes himself a humble servant. We know that he made great personal sacrifices for the good of the body. We know that James was willing to work with this council of elders and leaders in, in the life of the early church, and that although he spoke with a voice of leadership, he never considered himself to be greater than anyone else in the life of the body. And we even see that in the nature of what James has written in James, particularly in chapters 2 and in chapter 5, when he talks about how those in roles of leadership need to serve others in the life of the church. James was a servant, and as such, he served the body of Christ. And if we want to be servants of God and the Lord Jesus in the example of James, we too need to serve the body. We need to humble ourselves so that we can be a servant of others. And in fact, this is the very nature of what it means to be a leader. The way Jesus himself defines leadership, both with his life and his own example, is through service. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we see that Jesus says that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And James stands in, in, in the very example, in, in the shadow of his brother Jesus, in making himself a servant of the body of Christ. And so, if we want to follow this example, we too will humble ourselves and serve the body of Christ. Third, we see this, that a servant will be devoted to spiritual discipline. In church tradition, James is known as Old Camel Knees. That was, his, that was his, his nickname. That was what he was known by in the life of the early church. Old Camel Knees. And you may think, well, that's not very flattering. But the reason that he was referred to this is because his knees were known to be so worn from spending so much time in prayer on his knees before God that it was actually used as a nickname to refer to how devout his faith was. Old camel knees. James was devoted. He was known to be devoted to spiritual discipline, and particularly the discipline of prayer. In other tradition, in the life of the early church, particularly in the writing of early church fathers, oftentimes this James will be distinguished from the other Jameses that I talked about who are other characters of the New Testament because he's referred to as James the Just. James the Just, and that title is used to refer to him, again, to point to the fact that he was so humble and so pious, that he lived such a strong example of his faith, that he was so, so committed to his faith and spiritual discipline that he was known by others as being a just man. If we want to serve the body, if we want to live a life of obedience, it's going to take a commitment to spiritual discipline like that of James, the brother of Jesus. And so James lived this life of spiritual discipline. A servant will be devoted to spiritual discipline. Fourth, we see this, that a servant will practice what they preach when you study the themes in the book of James. We find that 
James gives us a lot of instruction of how we are to how we are to pray, how we are to live sacrificially, how we are to give, how we are to stay away from sin and not get mixed up with sinful passions and sin, sinful desires. James is going to instruct us on how we need to be committed to living out our faith, that our faith needs to show up in the way that we live. And in all of these things, we see this example that matches the way that James lived his own life. Here is a man who practiced what he preached. And if we're going to be servants of the Lord, we too are going to need to practice what it is that we preach and teach others. We're going to need to, uh, as some would say, uh, take our own advice and, and live out the things that we know we should be doing as servants of the Lord. Fifth, we see that a servant will engage with the mission of God. A servant will engage with the mission of God. In this particular case, when we, when we talk about James and what James is writing, James is writing to this group of Jews who are scattered throughout the, the known world. This group of Jews of, who are scattered throughout the dispersion, as it's referred to in James chapter 1, verse 1. And he's writing to them of how they are to live the genuineness of their faith, how they are to demonstrate the characteristics of genuine saving faith in the way that they live so that others around them might see Jesus in them. Mind you, this is before, James is writing so early even in, in all of this, this is before they would have had a New Testament canon that they could have, uh, that they could have studied, right? There, there was new, no New Testament Bible for them to study because this predates the writing of most, most of the New Testament. And so they had the Old Testament scriptures that set the example for them. But the way that they were to see the genuineness of the gospel was to be, that it was to be lived out in the lives of these believers. And James is saying to them that they needed to live a vibrant, real faith so that others would see Jesus in them. And that they would do this, of course, to engage with God's mission, that they would fulfill the great commandment, right? That they, would, that they would go into all the world, that they would preach the gospel, that they, would, that they would make believers, that they would baptize them and then teach them the things that they had been taught, and so that they would further the work of God's kingdom. They would live out this, literally this God-given mission that Jesus gave to his disciples and that was handed off to the rest of believers as well. So James is saying, essentially, as a servant of the Lord, we need to live out this mission. We see that in the nature of what he's written here in his letter. Sixth, we see this in James, again, in James' own example, that a servant will endure suffering. A servant will endure suffering. We know from church historian Josephus that in the year A.D. 62, James was condemned to death by the, by the Hebrew Sanhedrin and was martyred for his faith. James, this leader in the life of the church in Jerusalem, ultimately gave his life because he wouldn't stop preaching and teaching the gospel, even when it ultimately cost him his very life. And in doing that, he sets this example for us that a, a servant will be willing to endure hardship and trials because they know that ultimately what will be produced through those things will be a, a genuine faith. 
And isn't that exactly what James teaches? Even in James chapter 1, verse 12, if you jump down, read this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James didn't just write these words. He lived these words in giving his life ultimately for his faith. And so he, he demonstrates the true character of a servant of the Lord, that, would, that they would endure suffering, that they would stand for what they believe, even if it costs them ultimately their life. And then finally, the seventh thing that I want us to see in this, in this examination of the life the ministry of James is that a servant will trust in God's purpose. A servant will trust in God's purpose. He will trust in what the Lord has instructed him, what the Lord has taught him. And again, in James, in the, in the book of James, we find this not only taught in, in what James has written, but even lived out in the example that James sets for us as a servant of the Lord, that a servant will trust God's purpose for his life. A servant will entrust himself to God's plan, to God's direction. A servant will follow the Lord's leadership by doing what it is that God says. And so if we want to live a life of, 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 of a servant following the example of Jesus and ultimately following the same example that James sets out for us, then we will live a life marked by obedience. We will serve the body of Christ. We will be devoted to spiritual discipline. We will practice what we preach. We will engage with the mission of God. We will endure suffering and trust in God's purpose for our lives. This is what it means to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that oftentimes today, Christians don't want to be servant of the Lord. Rather, they try to make it all about themselves, right? When you look at the example oftentimes that's set in the world for us today, and there's, there's sort of even a, a celebrity culture of sorts around Christian figures in, in our world today. And, and when we look at this sort of Christian celebrity culture, these people who, who sometimes become the most prominent voices of Christian faith, seldom do we see this kind of humble, sacrificial example that James demonstrates for us. Oftentimes what we find is a lot of self-promotion. We find people who, uh, who, who you know, prominent Christian figures who do everything they can to sell their latest book or point others to their website or get as many uh, you know, social media followers as they can. They try to do everything they can to gain the largest possible platform for themselves. And, it, and it's all about them, ultimately, pointing people toward them. And so we see, you know, the, 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 just in so much of, of the, the Christian celebrity culture that is out there for us today to be consumers of all of this. And yet James lives a life that is markedly different from this. Because the, the point of what James is saying is, don't look at me, look at Jesus. The one, who, the one who set the example for us. And if you want to follow me, then follow me by humbling yourself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He points us to the fact that 
if we want to follow the example that Jesus has set for us, we will humble ourselves and make ourselves servants. It's not what we see popularized and celebrated in our world today, and yet, I would argue, maybe it's exactly what is missing the most when we look at the example that is set by so many in leadership today. You know, it's a real challenge to me as I study the life of James. As you know, James is someone I can identify with. He's a pastor, a leader of this church. And as a pastor and a leader of this church, I certainly want to follow the example that James has set in the way that I live my life. But this isn't just a work for pastors. This isn't just a, a letter that's written to leaders in the church. This is a letter written to all of us that we would understand and live out this example that James has set. And it begins by identifying ourselves as servants of the Lord. So I want to challenge you with this thought this morning. What would it look like if you were to really identify yourself as a servant? How might that change things for you? How might it change the way that you live your Christian faith rather than saying, what's in this for me? If you were to ask the question, what can I give? What, have, what, what do I need to do to serve? What must I do to give myself away so that others may believe? James sets this ultimate example for us of what it means to follow in faith. And I would challenge every one of us that as we jump into this study and spend several weeks studying through the letter of James, that we would approach it humbly, thinking of ourselves as fellow servants of James, the brother of Jesus, and that we would receive this instruction that he gives us, take it to heart in our lives by saying, Lord, we want to do everything we can to humble ourselves and to live a life of genuine faith so that others might see Jesus in us. So as we prepare for a time of response in a moment, I hope that you will be challenged today in some way to think about what, what you need to do as we launch into this new year, right? And we're thinking about new uh, all, all the new things that we, that we attempt in a new year. And we think about our resolutions even and, and all of those goals that we set for a new year. I hope that you will be challenged this morning to think about how does my life need to be different? What needs to change in order that I would be a servant of the Lord the way that James was? That I might give myself away so that others would come to faith in Jesus would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning as we prepare for our time of invitation in just a moment? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want to I encourage you, even now, to enter into a time of reflection, a time of prayer, that you would ask God this morning, Lord, what is it about my life that you would, that you would change? If, if you were speaking to me now, and I believe that he is, what is it that you, that you want to change in me? How, how do I need to live differently so that, like James, I might be considered a servant of the Lord? In a moment, we stand together to sing this song of invitation. Our altars will be open, and I want to challenge you that if God is, if God is prompting you in your spirit in any way, if He's, if he's 
pressing on you the things that need to change, that you would come and that you would kneel here before him at the altar this morning and that you would commit those things to the Lord. Brad and I will be standing here at the front as well, ready to receive you, ready to pray with you and encourage you. Maybe for some of you, one of the first things that needs to change is that the Lord wants you to plant your life with a body of believers. He's calling you to commit your life, to, to put down roots in this church by becoming a part of this church and joining our church family. We would love to receive you this morning and welcome you in as a part of this church family. Maybe it's to commit your life to Christ so that you can truly be devoted to Him. It has to begin by humbling yourself and surrendering your life to Him. Then come this morning and surrender your life to Jesus. However God is moving, whatever He's doing, I, I challenge you that you would respond in obedience this morning as God moves. Lord, we pray now that you would speak your word to our hearts so that we might respond in obedience and ultimately that our lives might follow this example that is set forth in your word. That like James and, and like Jesus who went before him, that we would humble ourselves and we would serve others so that our lives may point the way to Jesus. Lord, have your way in our lives now and bring conviction if there's anything that you want to change. If there's any part of our character, Lord, that you need to mold and shape in light of your word, Lord, we, we just say, have your way in us this morning as we respond by faith to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.